Listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. A little while ago, I came across a testimony of a country singer who used to be quite famous back in the 1980s. I'm pretty sure many people know the song titled, Mary Did You Know? It is a song that became very popular among Christians in 1997, which was sang by Kenny Rogers and Winona Judd. Mary Did You Know? was sung by many artists, but my personal favorite is a version sang by Kenny Rogers and Winona Judd. You probably think I will be speaking on either of the two, but I'd really actually like to share about the testimony Winona Judd gave in front of many people a few years back, because the words she spoke were very surprising to me. She was well known as a country music artist, but she was also very influential as she proclaimed to the mass public without any hesitation that she was a Christian and also sang many hymns and praise songs as well. But after this many years of her living out her life as a Christian, and also bringing great influence to the Christian community, it was only until very recent that she stood in front of many people at one of her concerts to confess that she recently met Christ. To me, this was a bit surprising. As I heard this confession of hers and watched her sing a hymn in tears, the thought that ran through my head was this. Even without meeting Christ, someone can have a spiritual influence on others and as capable of acting like they've met Christ and work and serve for God. But a part of me was telling me that her confession doesn't only apply to her, but that it can also be my confession. I begin to think about God's plan for me as He has so graciously revealed His Word to me every time I prepare for this broadcast program. I took a moment to see if I truly realized the true sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. Although you may be accepted to others as a devoted Christian, serve at church, and hold a lot of knowledge about the Bible, if Jesus does not come to find me, then there is no other way for me to meet him. As I was deeply drowned in these thoughts, I came across a pastor's confession, which became a hymn. We'll come back to share more about this confession after our first song. My foes are many, they rise against me, but I will hold my ground. I will not fear the war, I will not fear the storm, my help is on the way, my help is on the way. Oh, wait. 
1960s, the Christian Herald conducted a survey to see what the most liked hymn was, and the hymn with the most votes was "The Old Rugged Cross," written and composed by George Bernard. George Bernard was born in 1873 in the state of Ohio. He enjoyed reading the Bible beginning at a very young age, and always had a very strong passion to fall more deeply within the Word, which directed his heart to go to seminary. But when he was at the age of sixteen, his father suddenly passed away from an accident. His dreams of going to seminary school had to be put away as he was compelled to support the family. Due to financial struggles, he had to do whatever he could to feed his family. Even while working, he made time to read the Bible. If he heard that someone had a book which helped understand reading the Bible, he never failed to find that person to borrow the book. After these many long years, he finally went to seminary school and pastored a Methodist church. After marrying, Bernard became active in the Salvation Army, and due to his deep interpretation of the Bible and his spirit-filled sermons, he eventually preached throughout the United States and Canada. George Bernard became a greatly renowned revival speaker, and regardless of the denomination or church, his revival meetings were very influential and well known. He had endless invitations to come and speak. One night, during one of the revival meetings, he had a vision and saw Christ and the cross inseparable. That night, after seeing this vision, he quickly returned home and fell into deep thoughts. He wondered why God had allowed him to see this vision. He wondered if, due to his busy schedule, if he was leading his revival meetings without any grace. He began to rethink about God's plans for his life, how he struggled at a very young age to support his family and to go to seminary, but he also reflected back on his faith to whether or not he had experienced the power of the cross and the resurrection. These thoughts led him to fall deeply in agony and worry. He knew so well about the doctrines of the cross and resurrection, but realized he never experienced Christ. And due to this, he struggled to focus on his revival meetings. Then one night, after one of his revival meetings, he went back to his home. He went home and prayed as he kneeled down before a cross that was hung up on the wall. As he prayed, he was able to see Jesus Christ hung on the cross, looking down at him. He experienced the blood of Christ falling down onto his head and down his whole body. George Bernard finally met Christ. On this day, he realized the heart of Jesus Christ, who sacrificed all he had for our sins. He cried and praised God all night long, and during this time, came to his head a poem of a hymn. This heart that he had after realizing Christ's heart, with this heart, he was able to confess how he would live before Christ the rest of his life. During one of his revivals, he played and sang this hymn that he composed, and this hymn was the very famous "The Old Rugged Cross." And later, this hymn became the most liked hymn of all. And he is jealous for me. 
Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of His wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful You are and how. Your affections are for me. Oh, how He loves us! Oh, oh, how He loves us! How He loves us all! For me, love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of His wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. 
Today's topic is Fighting Hypocrisy in the Church, Part 1, based on Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 13. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis. My wife's, uh, my wife's grandmother, Grandma Clara, and some of you guys know Grandma Clara, and uh, she still writes letters to some of you. Uh, she, she was here from the start with the church. And, uh, you know, we just gave that series on being in love with Jesus. And I, I was trying to think, do I know of anyone on this planet who was more in love with Jesus than Grandma? And I thought, no, not even close. Uh, I, there, there are people that are committed to Jesus. There are people who commit to serving the Lord. People that have sacrificed everything for God. But when I think about someone who is truly in love with Jesus Christ, I think no one holds a candle to Grandma. Uh, and my wife would tell me that at, when she uh, was growing up, she'd hear Grandma in the room next door to her just crying and praying every morning. And she'd tell Lisa, she goes, you know, every morning I, I get on my knees right there by that corner of the bed and that's where I meet with God. And she goes, throughout the day, whenever I pass by that corner of the bed, I, I get weepy and I say to God, God, I can't wait till tomorrow morning just to be with you again and spend that quality time with you. And she was just talking to Jesus all the time, all day long. She would pray. I mean, she was truly in love and she could not wait to see him. And so it was exciting when we got the news and going, wow, she's... She's finally there. She's finally there. She, she told me one time that she thought maybe that the Lord was keeping her alive because he was going to return, you know, before she died. And so that she was waiting for that. And, and, and he, the, the, the most impactful thing she, she ever did for me personally, and I've shared the story before, was uh, this one time the, the whole family went over to the Moore Park melodrama thing. This was years ago. I don't even know if it exists anymore. But we're, we're over there at the theater. And during halftime, I look over at Grandma and I go, I go, Grandma, what do you, what do you, what do you think? What do you think of the play so far? Because it was clean, it was good, and she's a very godly woman. And she goes, Oh, I don't want to be here. Okay, I go, Well, there was nothing bad. You know, they didn't say any bad words. There weren't any anything that that was wrong about the play. And she goes, Oh, honey, it's not that. She goes, I just don't know if I want to be here when Jesus returns. She goes, I, I'd rather be helping someone. I'd rather be praying for someone, but I don't want Jesus to return and just find me sitting in a theater watching a play. And I thought, wow, you take the Bible seriously. I mean, we've all heard the passages, right? That Christ could return at any moment and want to be ready. We want to be doing what he wants us to be doing at that time. But she lived it out. Here was a woman who thought through every moment of the day. What do I want to be doing when Christ returns? Do I want to be doing this when he returns? Not even if it's something horribly evil. It's just, she goes, I want him to see that I'm serving him. That I'm praying to him. That I've been waiting for him. And it's so weird when someone takes the word of God seriously, isn't it? It's convicting. And you go, you know what? That's the way we ought to live. And and needless to say, I didn't watch the second half of the play. I mean, I'm sitting there praying the whole time going, maybe she knows something. You know, I, I, I'm just... The whole time, just seriously, I was just praying for neighbors, praying for friends. It, it, it changed the way I live. Because when someone lives out the Bible, suddenly you don't have an excuse. When you finally see it. That's what Brad Buser did for us last weekend, right? Because it's one thing for me to come up and say, hey, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow him. You know what? Let go of your dreams. It's another thing for someone who actually did it. 
to stand up here and say, you know, I don't see any other way around this thing. You just do what God wants you to do. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew 25 and we talked about the sheep and goat judgment and how Jesus says that, you know what, that's me that's starving. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. And I go, if we take that seriously, then we've got to be living our life to try to help these people that are in need around the world, because that's Jesus. I'm not going to let Jesus starve. And so we've got to be passionate about these things. And it's interesting, after I gave that message and the podcast went out, we've been getting emails all around the world. People people emailing us going, are you serious? Your church is going to give away that much? You guys are going to take that passage seriously? People are saying, finally, a church is putting its money where its mouth is? You're, you're really going to care for the poor like that? And it was just, you're hearing these people because suddenly now churches are going, wait, now we have no excuse. Passages in Scripture that we have to take seriously. I mean, every passage in Scripture we have to take seriously. And, and, and again, I'm just tired of growing up in church and hearing the message and then not actually doing something about it. Yes, this morning I'm going to share a passage of Scripture that we have to take seriously. Um, the elders discussed this a couple of weeks ago. It was either this last Monday or the Monday before, and, and we agreed that I need to teach on this. But let me just say this right now. Because we're taking this passage seriously, some of you will not return next weekend. No, by teaching this, though, seriously, yeah, last service, guy just walked out after saying, is that really it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And that's a very sad thing. It's sad to me, but it's, but it's okay. It's okay. And the reason why it's okay is you need to understand that ever since we started this church, we have taught a God-centered theology. That means that everything revolves around God. We don't teach a man-centered theology, which is what most of the world teaches and most churches teach. It's a man-centered theology where everything revolves around you. And God is just trying to appease you and, and do things the way you want them done. That's why I don't ask you, hey, what do you guys want to do at church next week? Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about looking in this book and saying, what does God want? It's a God-centered theology, you see? And when you have a God-centered theology that says that everything revolves around God, it answers the question when people ask, you know, or, or people say, my life is painful, I've been through some hard times, things aren't going the way I want them to, so there must not be a God. We hear that all the time. I'm going through a hard time, so there must not be a God. Well, that's true. There must not be a God whose actions revolve around you. But there could exist a God who believes that everything should revolve around him. That God could exist. And that's the way the God of the Bible explains himself. And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We, we, we grew up praying that prayer, a lot of us. Growing up in Sunday school, you learned it in Catholic school. Did you know that God wanted us to take that seriously too? That when we said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that we, not just to repeat it and just to say, oh yeah, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No. That we really mean it. God, I want what you want. Forget my desires. Put my dreams aside. This is about you. This world centers around you. And therefore, this church centers around God. And uh, 
The God of the Bible, when he describes himself, he goes, you need to understand why I do certain things on the earth. It's really for one reason, and that reason is me. In uh, the Old Testament, if we look at Isaiah, I'm going to put a passage up to Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. This is when God was telling Israel why he wasn't destroying them yet. He says this, For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you, so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God is explained to the nation of Israel, because you know why I don't destroy you? Is it because you're just such good people and you're such a wonderful nation that you know what, I just figured I'm going to take care of you? He goes, no, the reason why I don't destroy you is for my name's sake. It's for me. It's for the sake of my praise. He's saying, see, if I destroy you and everyone knows that you are my people, they're going to say that, see, your God isn't as powerful as our God. And he goes, so it's for my own name's sake that I'm delaying my wrath. He goes, because I don't want to be defamed. I don't want other people to say, see, your God isn't powerful. He goes, so it's for my own sake. He says it again, for my own sake, I do this. Because he goes, I'm not going to yield my glory to another. Everyone needs to know that Yahweh God, the God of Israel, is the almighty God. And that's why I don't destroy you. Because you're rebellious, and I should destroy you. But I don't, for my own name's sake. You understand that? It wasn't for Israel. It was for him. It was for his own glory, for his own name. It's no different in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and, don't miss that word, for him. Why did he make everything? So that he could cater to the needs of all the things that he made? He made everything, it says, for him. That we are supposed to revolve around him. We go, what do you want? Rather than saying, God, why aren't you giving me what I want? We teach as a church this God-centered theology, and I understand it flies in the face of everything you're taught all week long. In other places where everything's about you, the customer's always right. It's all about you. If you don't get your way, you know what? Fight for it, fight for it, fight for it. And the Bible says, no, not my will be done, but thine. That's why Jesus prayed. Even Jesus, I only say what the Father wants me to say. I don't say anything unless he he tells me to say it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Having said this, again, just want to make sure you understand. From its inception, this has not been Francis's church. This is God's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. If it were my church, I would do a lot of things differently. The reason is, I would do things differently because I disagree with this book a lot. I disagree with this book a lot. But when I disagree, I still obey. Because you don't have to agree with someone to obey him. See, because when I disagree with God, I assume I'm wrong. Crazy, huh? I just give him the benefit of, ah, you probably know more. When I disagree, I go, you know what? I assume that I'm wrong and you're right. And so I'll still obey you. See, the crazy thing is most people don't do that. When they disagree with this book, they walk away. 
And they go, well, forget it. I'm going to go my own way. Or when I disagree with this book, you know what? I'm going to go with what I think. Because God gave me a mind. And I'm not going to just check it in at the door. And I just go, wow, that's crazy. So you're going to go with your opinion over God's. That's nuts. It's, it's, um, it's like uh, the other day when... Uh, Two weeks ago, we were visiting my wife's grandma, and we're up up north, and some other relatives were there, and we went out to lunch. And uh, during lunch, um, my wife prays. Well, after she prays, her her cousin's daughter was there, who's like three years old. After my wife prays, she looks at my wife and goes, "You did that wrong." And we just kind of laugh, and then she goes, "No, you you don't do it right." And uh, Lisa's like, "Well, what did I do wrong?" She says, "It was it was just wrong. It was wrong." It's just so funny. I have a little three-year-old telling her, you know, you don't pray right. You don't, you don't do that very well. And, uh, and I, I think, how silly it must sound to an eternal God when someone who's existed 20 years, 40 years, 80 years looks up and goes, uh, you didn't do it right. That's not the right way to do it. I, I've got a better idea. You see, when you and God disagree... When you disagree with scripture, whose viewpoint do you take? It's very important because if you don't follow God's word, then you're really not a follower of God. I mean, you just follow God as long as he agrees with you. So in reality, who's who's your God? It's yourself. You know, at some point you just got to say, you know what, I disagree with this, but you know what? God, this is God. So I'm going to submit to it anyways. And that's what we're doing as a church. If this were my church, I wouldn't practice 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 5 because we're going to do it anyways. Because God has written his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 9, it's written, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So what do we do with that? Ignore it? I don't like it. I don't agree with it. Sounds harsh. Let's not do it. Or do we go, you know what? This is what God says. And, and because this is his church, you got to understand, God says, this is my church. This isn't, this isn't Francis' church, not your church. This is God's church. And he goes, look, I want things done a certain way in my house. In your house, if you want to have all sorts of immorality, that's your home. With your bride, whatever, you, you, whatever kind of bride you want, that's up to you. But for my church, my bride, my house, I want a house that is pure. This is God speaking. He goes, if you want to do things on earth as it is in heaven, you really mean that? Well, here's what I want in my church. I want purity. When I come back from my bride, I want to see that my bride is pure. And I want to see that you've expelled those who call themselves Christians. 
but are living these immoral lifestyles. Now he makes it clear. He, he goes, look, I am not telling you. See, because Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians and he said, you know what? In my letter, I told you not to associate with the sexual immoral. He goes, I wasn't talking about the people in the world. He goes, I'm not telling you just to die and go to heaven. I mean, you wouldn't be able to talk to anyone. He goes, you need to be out there. You've got to understand this. I think the church has got it all wrong. What we end up doing... It's the same thing the Corinthian church does, is we avoid the people in the world that are immoral. We run from them and we curse them and we judge them. And God says, what are you judging them for? You have no right to judge them. That's God's job. He goes, but inside the church, you are supposed to judge them. See, we allow sin in the church and we go, well, that guy's leaving his wife. Well, I would have left her too. You know, whatever type of thing. And oh, let me put my arm around you. And the Bible's saying, wait, no, 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 not in my house. Not in my church. And we let these things go on in the church, and then we say how evil those people are out in the world. You guys, that's completely opposite of what God desires. God says, you know what? The people who don't know me, they're going to do what they're going to do, and you need to love them. You need to, be, you need to go after them. Isn't that what Jesus did? He was out with the alcoholics, with the prostitutes, with the murderers, with the thieves. That's who Jesus hung with out in the world. By saying in the church, it's supposed to look differently. God says, I, I want the church to be pure. See, and I know that some of you are thinking, man, Francis, you preach this type of message and we won't need a, you know, a building project. We, 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 uh, you're going to get rid of everyone. You know what, the, what? What if what if unbelievers hear this message? What if people outside of the church walls hear this type of message? It's going to turn them off to Christianity. And I, I think you'd be surprised. I believe the world is waiting for the church to preach this message. They are waiting for the church to get serious about judging the sin that's inside of the church and quit judging them. And then suddenly we'll be a light to the world and they'll be attracted to it and say, okay, now I want to be a place like that. Because how many times have you shared with people and they said, I don't need to be a part of that church. I know so-and-so, he goes there, calls himself a Christian. He's twice as immoral as I am. Who needs your Jesus? Well, what if the church was serious about purity? And suddenly in here, we uh, loved each other enough that we went after each other and confronted each other on the things that are not pleasing to God. And we started judging those inside the church. I tell you, that's not going to deter people from this place. It's suddenly going to be the salt of the earth. It'll be the light of the world.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. There are people who gave up their lives in honor of Christ who gave us our everlasting life. Continued is the story of the many people who endured their life with faith, titled, 
the voice of the martyrs. Hello, listeners. This is Rhonda Walker with the voice of the martyrs. Today, we are going to talk about a country far, far away, Japan. Japan is one of the leading economic powers in the world. Yet, from a Christian perspective, it is still considered the last reached land. Depending on the source, Christians in Japan comprise only about half a percent of the population, or less than one percent. In other words, out of 100 Japanese people we come across, only one or none of them will turn out to be a Christian. Due to such low acceptance rate of Christianity, Japan is also known as the graveyard for missionaries. However, would this always have been the case? No. In fact, an immeasurable blood of martyrs, blood has been poured out into this land. It is recorded that the number of Christians who lost their lives in Japanese history reaches almost four hundred thousand. Christianity first entered Japan through the city of Nagasaki. In 1549, Francis Xavier, a missionary of the Society of Jesus from Spain, arrived in Japan with the good news of Christ. Starting in Nagasaki, the good news of Jesus began to spread into other regions of Japan as well. This evangelical movement. Brought many people into the light of salvation for over thirty years. However, soon the persecution of Christians began under Toyotomi Hideyoshi's regime, beginning in 1580. However, soon the persecution of Christians began under Toyotomi Hideyoshi's regime, beginning in 1580. The first measure that Toyotomi Hideyoshi implemented. Was the ban of Christianity in 1587, which ordered for the exile of missionaries in Japan? His next edict was the execution of Christians in Nagasaki on February 5th, 1597, beheading and burning a total of 26 Christians. This marked the first martyrdom in Japan, and the persecution of Christians continued on. For more than two hundred years, on this day of the first martyrdom in Japan, not only full-grown adults, but also three young children at the age of fourteen, thirteen, and twelve, lost their lives. The story of the twelve-year-old still remains to inspire today's Christians. Guilty, perform the execution. After hearing the sentence, twenty-six Christians were brought to the row of twenty-six hastily made crosses. These twenty-six people were arrested in Tokyo for their faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Four of them were from Spain, two were from Mexico and Portugal, and the rest were Japanese natives, including three young children. Taking them to the execution ground. A guard saw the youngest among them, who was only 12 years old. Suddenly feeling sorry, the guard asked the boy, "Child, are you not scared of death?" 
deny Jesus and go back home. The boy looked straight at the guard and answered firmly, Don't worry about me, sir. I wish that you would become a Christian too, so that you could join me in heaven. Once they arrived, the boy asked the guard, Sir, which one is my cross? The enemy always tries to separate us from our faith for Christ. However, the enemy could not cut off the 12-year-old boy from his faith. How could this little boy keep his faith in front of death? His own righteousness? His own strength? Certainly not. Then, what would have been the source of his courage and perseverance? I say, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. As written in 1 Corinthians 10.13, God gives us strength so that we can overcome every temptation. God never leaves his people alone. He always dwells within his people. Even in the times of hardship and suffering, we are never alone. Jesus went through the same hardship and suffering before us and will always be with us under every circumstance. God promises us, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus gives a command followed by a very important promise. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. May we all find strength in this promise and be molded into strong, faithful Christians that the world is not worthy of. As we conclude this episode of The Voice of the Martyrs, Remember until next time, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. I will cling to the old
the old rugged cross I will ever be true It's shame and reproach gladly bear Then he'll call me someday To my home far away Where is glory forever I'll share And I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I loved that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Starting from a very young age, George Bernard believed in God and enjoyed reading the Bible. Because he had a growing passion for the Word, he later became a pastor, and not only was his sermons greatly known and heard among many people, he had a strong spiritual influence among many. But during all of this, Bernard had never experienced the power of the cross that Christ died on. But as he knew so much about Jesus Christ and had a burning passion to grow closer to Him, one day the power of the cross and resurrection came alive within Bernard's life. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. These are the very passages of Hosea chapter 6 verse 3. To acknowledge the Lord does not mean to simply know, but to experience, just as God knows us, and as a married couple knows one another. We must also fully experience the presence of Christ and meet Him. We must not stop at just knowing God, but we must have a deep relationship established and have daily fellowship with Him, as He will come to find and meet us to experience His presence. Let us take this time to look upon ourselves to see if we are only satisfied by knowing God. I hope that we may strive to pursue our relationship with our Father God, that we may truly experience Him on a more intimate level. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week and God bless.